0: Revolution. I'm Danica of Code Pink. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. Just recently, Senators Murphy, Lee, and Sanders introduced sweeping bipartisan legislation to overhaul Congress's role in national security. It's called the National Security Powers Act, and it safeguards congressional prerogative in the use of military force, emergency powers, and arm exports by cutting off funding for activities lacking authorization. And also very recently, Ben and Jerry's announced that they were going to stop selling their ice cream and illegal settlements in the Palestinian territories. We'll hear more on both of those things from our first guest, Code Pink's co-director, Ariel Gold. Earlier this week... Daniel Hale, a drone whistleblower, was sentenced to prison in Alexandria, Virginia. Daniel was accused of giving an investigative journalist information about the secretive U.S. drone warfare program, information that revealed gross human rights violations, including the fact that drones were more deadly and less accurate than the U.S. presented. In fact, this data showed that, in the time period analyzed, nearly 90% of those killed by drone strikes were not the intended target. Under intense pressure for charges that could have resulted in decades of prison time, on March 31st, 2021, Daniel pleaded guilty to one count of retention and transmission of national defense information in violation of the Espionage Act. Because of the plea deal, Daniel has no chance to appeal his case. For the first time since his prosecution began, Daniel had a chance to speak at his own sentencing. I'll now read a part of Daniel's letter to his judge, Liam O'Grady. The most harrowing day of my life came months into my deployment to Afghanistan when a routine surveillance mission turned into a disaster. For weeks, we've been tracking the movements of a ring of car bomb manufacturers living around Jalalabad. Car car bombs directed at U.S. bases had become an increasingly frequent and deadly problem that summer. So much effort was put into stopping them. It was a windy and clouded afternoon when one of the suspects had been discovered headed eastbound, driving at a high rate of speed. This alarmed my superiors, who believed he might be attempting to escape across the border into Pakistan. A drone strike was our only chance, and already it began lining up to take the shot but the less-advanced Predator drone found it difficult to see through the clouds and compete against strong headwinds. single payload MQ-1 failed to connect with its target, instead missing by a few meters. The vehicle, damaged but still drivable, continued on ahead after narrowly avoiding destruction. Eventually, once the concern of another incoming missile subsided, the driver stopped, got out of the car, and checked himself as though he could not believe he was still alive. Out of the passenger side came a woman wearing an unmistakable burqa. As astounding as it was to have just learned there had been a woman, possibly his wife, there with the man we intended to kill moments ago. I had the chance to see what happened next before the drone diverted its camera when she began frantically to pull out something from the back of her car. A couple of days passed before I finally learned from a briefing by my commanding officer about what took place. There indeed had been the suspect's wife with him in the car. And in the back were their two young daughters, ages five and three years old. A cadre of Afghan soldiers were sent to investigate where the car had stopped the following day. It was there they found them placed in the dumpster nearby. Eldest was found dead due to unspecified wounds caused by shrapnel that pierced her body. Her younger sister was alive but severely dehydrated. As my commanding officer relayed this information to us, she seemed to express disgust. Not for the fact that we had... ...fired on a man and his family, having killed one of his daughters, but for the suspected bomb maker having ordered his wife to dump the bodies of their daughters in the trash so the two of them could escape more quickly across the border. Now, whenever I encounter an individual who thinks that drone warfare is justified and reliably keeps America safe, I remember that time and ask myself how could I possibly continue to believe that I am a good person, deserving of my life and the right to pursue happiness. Daniel Hale ended his letter with, My conscience, once held at bay, came roaring back to life. At first I tried to ignore it, wishing instead that someone better placed than I should come along to take this cup from me. But this too was folly, left to decide whether to act. I only could do that which I ought to do before God and my own conscience. The answer came to me, that to stop the cycle of violence, I ought to sacrifice my own life and not that of another person. So I contacted an investigative reporter with whom I had established a prior relationship, and I told him that I had something the American people needed to know. Respectfully, Daniel Hale. Daniel spoke at the Code Pink Drone Summit in 2013, and he did something really simple but meaningful. He apologized to drone victims and their families. He said to the people in the audience who are victims, who are families of victims, or. Have families who live in countries where U.S. militarism, specifically unmanned systems, are conducting kinetic strikes. I'm sorry. For a short period of time during my military career as an analyst, I worked with unmanned systems deployed to Afghanistan. And at the very least, you all deserve an apology. In 2009, President Obama was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for Diplomacy, and he would go on to kill countless civilians with drone warfare in the US government who authorized drone strikes has ever been held accountable Daniel Hale who bravely and courageously whistle blew on the u.s drone program will go to prison and tomorrow uh, Friday the 30th is national whistleblower day you can call on Joe Biden to pardon Daniel Hale at codepink.org forward slash Daniel Hale
1: Code Pink co founder Medea Benjamin was at the sentencing of Daniel Hale on Tuesday. Uh, Medea, what can you tell us about the sentencing?
2: Hi, this is Medea Benjamin of Code Pink. I was at the hearing where Daniel Hale on July 27th was sentenced to 45 months in prison for having exposed U.S. killings with a drone program, killing of innocent people. Here is a young man, now 33 years old, whose conscience was so affected by what he was involved in that he couldn't live with himself without taking the information that he learned, working on this drone program, and giving it to a journalist. What did he learn? He learned that the U.S. was killing innocent people. He learned that in 90% of the cases, the U.S. was killing people who weren't even their intended targets. Uh, he also learned that these drone programs were making us less safe because you kill all kinds of innocent people and uh, their families, their tribes are going to hate you. Uh, I myself have had the chance to witness that in Yemen, and Afghanistan, Pakistan, meeting with families whose loved ones were killed by U.S. drones. They had no problem with the U.S. beforehand, but boy, after they, uh, their grandmother or their Uh, brother or their son was killed by a U.S. drone, they hated the United States. And so what Daniel Hale did was come to our summit in 2013, where Code Pink exposed drone killing, and he actually apologized to the people in Afghanistan whose innocent loved ones had been killed by U.S. drone strikes. It was an incredible moment to see a drone analyst apologize to the victims. And so here uh, we have a young man whose conscience couldn't let him live with the fact that he participated in this program. And so he handed over documents that should have been in the purview of the American people but were classified uh, and gave them to a journalist who exposed these wrongdoings to the world. And for this, uh, his home was raided back in 2014 his, all his electronic documents were seized. And for seven years, the government uh, pursued him and made his life hell and finally charged him in 2019 with five counts of espionage. Uh, this could have landed him decades in prison, which is why he did a plea deal uh, pleading only to one of the counts. Uh, the other reason he did the plea deal, because according to this Arcane Espionage Act, that he was charged with, which is supposed to be giving over documents to some kind of enemy, uh, and the enemy in this case was the American people, Um, he would not have been allowed to talk about why he did this. Uh, That is not allowed in an Espionage Act uh, trial. So he gave, he pleaded to um, one count, and he was sentenced to 45 months. Now we're hoping, according to our friend John Kiriakou, a CIA whistleblower who also went to jail, in this case for exposing U.S. torture, uh, he says that with time served, a halfway house, and a drug-slash-mental health program, uh, that Daniel Hell will hopefully be out in two years. In the meantime, there's a lot to do to support him. One is to sign the Code Pink petition, That asked the president to pardon Daniel Hale. And you can see this on the Code Pink website. And the other is to support him by writing him letters uh, when he's in a place where he can receive books. He's a very avid reader and would love to receive books. Uh, And all of this information can be found at the Code Pink website, codepink.org backslash Daniel Hale. Please support this very courageous whistleblower while he spends time in prison for exposing the wrongdoing of our government. Thank you.
0: Now we will hear from Ariel Gold, co-director of Code Pink, and journalist Abby Martin on Palestine.
3: Great, well, I wanna begin by saying how excited I am by this new War Powers Act. Um, I think many of us uh, witnessed during the recent brutal assaults on Gaza that uh, in the midst of that, the US approved a $735 million munitions sale to Israel. And they did so by informing Congress when it was pretty much too late for Congress to, Uh, gather up a resolution of disapproval to block this. But this new War Powers Act, one of the things that it does is it changes who the onus is on. So instead of uh, the executive branch approving an arms sale and then Congress having a very, very uh, limited time with which to introduce legislation to block it, instead, the executive branch, the president would have to seek congressional approval from Congress in order to uh, put through any weapons deal over, I, I believe it's $14 million. So I'm really excited about this. If this had already been in place, we would not have this $735 million munitions sale to Israel after they have just used up their munitions, massacring Palestinians. Okay, so that said, there's a lot going on. Um, in Palestine and Israel right now. Uh, last week, uh, Israel blocked feminist activist and a member of parliament, Khalida Gerard, from leaving prison to attend the funeral of her beloved daughter. Uh, Khalida Gerard spent over a year in administrative detention. Administrative detention is a part of Israel's military law where they arrest Palestinians and hold them without charge or trial. So she spent over a year in administrative detention, no charge, no trial, the evidence is secret, before she uh, finally took a two-year deal with Israel, which uh, will be completing in the fall and In the meantime, her, her beloved uh, daughter passed away, and she wanted to attend the funeral. And as a basically as a show of cruelty, uh, Israel did not allow that. Now, just this week, as in just yesterday, uh, there's a lot of news coming out of um, out of the area. And the first is is quite horrific. It has been revealed that the Israeli cyber firm, NSO, has been selling its software, the software is called Pegasus, to a number of authoritarian states, including Saudi Arabia, that the states have then used to spy specifically on journalists, we assume activists and others as well, activists and dissidents, um, but specifically 180 cases of spying on journalists. Now, this is through their cell phones. This is called a no-touch spyware technology, basically. Uh, It infects your phone, but you didn't click anything, you didn't do anything. And from there, it can uh, gather any information from your phone. It can also video and audio uh, record you. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that the countries that purchased this Pegasus software, uh, Saudi Arabia, Hungary, uh, the UAE, Rwanda, Morocco, India, are all countries that the the former prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, had just improved diplomatic relations with. So clearly this was used as a tool uh, to normalize, Uh, relations with Israel to to whitewash Israel's crimes against Palestinians. Now, in an incredible piece of uplifting news, the ice cream company Ben & Jerry's announced that it uh, will no longer be selling its ice cream in illegal Israeli settlements. They have a contract uh, with an Israeli franchisee and that contract expires. Uh, in December 2022, and they have announced that they will not be renewing that contract. There's a little bit of back and forth here. Uh, The the statement that was released by Ben & Jerry's says that they will continue to do business, that they will find somebody new to do business with for doing business inside uh, what's called the Green Line, the the legal borders of Israel. However, uh, Ben & Jerry's independent board who is in charge of its social responsibility and has to approve such uh, new contracts uh, said officially that they did not authorize that to be part of the statement. And so basically they've hinted that this is um, an embrace of the full boycott of Israel that it's likely that Ben and Jerry's will have um, no contracts inside any part of Israel from the Palestine, from the river to the sea, um, in accordance with the BDS movement. So I know that that gave me a lot of hope today. And it really showed that the tides are turning, which we've seen in public opinion as well, included, including a new poll that uh, showed that the majority of American Jews support conditioning Uh, military aid to Israel so that it does not go to the settlements. So um, with that exciting news, I'm going to pass it back to you, Marcy.
2: Thank you, Ariel, for all those updates. Yeah. All right, so Abby Martin is a U.S. journalist, a documentarian, a TV reporter, an activist. She is the founder of Media Roots for Citizen Journalism. She serves on the board of Media Freedom Foundation and manages Project Censored. Abby hosted Breaking the Set on RT, Russia's RT network in America. Uh, Then she launched Empire Files, which was an uh, an internet series that played on Telesur. In 2018, she released Gaza Fights for Freedom. Abby, can you give us some updates on
0: Palestine and Israel?
4: This is an optimistic time um, because every time there's some horrific onslaught of violence in Gaza or something like a flashpoint like Sheikh Jarrah or Silwan, the world becomes attentive. All of a sudden, people are ready to hear what they may have been lied about their entire lives. And of course, what the media hides, this, this reality that's so stark and so obvious once you really do open your eyes to the other side. Um, and this is a breaking point. This is this is something that I truly believe is the beginning of the end for the apartheid state. Um, because once you have Human Rights Watch, once you have Bet Salam, which is an organization that exists within Israeli society. Once you have sitting Congress people declaring Israel is an apartheid state, the narrative now becomes, well, what can we do about apartheid? What can we do to administer equal rights for all? What can we do to condition aid to make sure Israel adheres to international law, ends the occupation, uh, ends the illegal settlements? I mean, this is now going to be the conversation moving forward. It's not you know, you're anti-Semitic if you criticize a government that's committing war crimes. No, now you're on the defense to explain why you support apartheid. You know, the narrative has completely flipped on its head. Not only are we seeing these dramatic poll shifts in public consciousness with Democrats and young Jewish Americans, um, but, you know, looking at Gallup polls, like, for example, who interview American voters every year on the Israel-Palestine issue for the first time this year, those voters said that Israel needs to be pressured as opposed to Palestine. This is due uh, to the advent of social media. I mean, Palestinians are able to film their own reality for the first time. They have forced the narrative shift. These historic protests, the uprisings that we saw, not only across Palestine, across party lines, but across the United States for the first time in the history of this country. I mean, these were the biggest pro-Palestine solidarity demonstrations that we have ever seen. And I think the swell and upsurge of Black Lives Matter and the consciousness shifting of police brutality really opens that international solidarity um, where people can say, look, Palestinians are actually suffering the same struggle, the same fight, Uh, linking these struggles together, whether it be Black Lives Matter, whether it be immigrant detention and using Israeli military technology. All of these things, I think, are contributing to this mass awakening Um, and the latest violent brutality that we saw issued on Gaza, where 70 children were killed. Israel has completely lost its moral high ground. They cannot walk away from this with their normal PR. Um, so they try to deflect it and basically blame a rise in anti-Semitism to pro-Palestine solidarity activism. And that was a very, very disingenuous campaign that we saw running for three weeks after um, this this latest massacre. If there's a rise of anti-Semitism, it's obviously due to a rise of right-wing extremism. This is coupled with all of these other you know, horrific mentalities and ideologies that are on the rise worldwide. But it certainly has nothing to do with pro-Palestine solidarity activism. But unfortunately, that's what you saw the corporate media running with because they cannot defend Israel's actions anymore. They cannot defend Israel leveling giant apartment buildings using targeted munitions to target sleeping families in their homes. This collective punishment and torture on the residents of Gaza. Um, And so the international community has woken up. They are looking in, in sheer horror at what's happening. And we all know that politics follows the cultural shift, right? And the consciousness has completely shifted in this country. And you see, whether it's the Meteor Festival a couple of years ago during the Great March of Return, where all of these artists were dropping like flies. They refused to play in Tel Aviv. They refused to play in Jerusalem because they were shamed. From their audiences, Lana Del Rey, uh, Demi Lovato, all of these people, right? This is a huge, dramatic thing that they no longer have people like Natalie Portman, Seth Rogen to go out and walk, uh, you know, basically run defense for Israel's war crimes anymore. Even Seth Rogen just went on the Mark Moran podcast and he said there's something deeply wrong. With what we've been told about Israel and and their you know this this notion of eternal right to self-defense. I mean they he was one of their biggest advocates just a couple of years ago. So all of these things coupled together. Natalie Portman giving back this million dollar reward, um, you know saying that she doesn't feel comfortable representing Israel anymore. It may seem small, but it's absolutely not because once you have no one that you can parade out there to defend these crimes then you're just stuck with the politicians, right? And we all know where this is going. And we know that these anti-BDS laws that have been passed in 30 states in the U.S. are done to preemptively hold back that tide of justice.
1: And can you talk to us a bit about the litigation in the state of
2: Georgia?
4: The law in Georgia, the anti-BDS law there, is now unenforceable due to my litigation. I worked with CARE and the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund, and we launched a lawsuit against the state of Georgia because they gave me such a contract. These contracts exist, as you mentioned, um, in states all across the country. I think they're in 30 states now where if you are doing independent contracting work for a state institution, you are given a contract that says you cannot engage in a boycott against Israel. It's an open Uh, Admission of foreign interference, the fact that not only organizations like what you're talking about, Marcy, but also the Israeli government has bragged about this. You saw Netanyahu take to Twitter and say, we have worked very hard to advocate passing these bills across the U.S. I mean, it just flies in the face of any sort of comprehension um, that, you know, we constantly hear ad nauseum about Russia, about Putin interfering in our democracy. This is the direct admission from a foreign government of undermining our civil liberties and First Amendment. That pro-Palestine speech is the most criminalized and policed speech across the US. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why is that? Why are they working so hard to stimmy and stifle this kind of speech? Because they know what's coming. They know the tide of justice is nearing. And they know that BDS will inevitably bring down apartheid just like it did Jim Crow apartheid here and South African apartheid. And that is why it is so crucial for allies uh, in the United States to take heed of this call and act in concert with Palestinians urging for the boycott, divestment, sanctions efforts. And we see it working, whether it's the Zim boat shipments being blocked um, in different ports, whether it's uh, Ben and Jerry's. I mean, I mean, that and also the cultural boycott. Like I said before, I mean, Hollywood celebrities, um, musicians, that is a huge monumental thing because what it really is about is about isolation. We're not trying to cripple the, the Israeli economy. We're not trying to sanction food and medicine like the U.S. does to Iranian and Venezuelan citizens. No, of course not. This is about the isolation, just like it was in apartheid South Africa. We need to put these people on the defense and, and basically have them explain away why do you support apartheid? And if you do, you're not welcome in these spaces.
0: Thank you so much to Ariel and Abby are listening to Code Pink Radio, coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C., and WBAI in New York City. We'll be back after this break. Matthew Petty of the Quincy Institute. That was Forever by Willow, and welcome back. I am Danica with Code Pink, and you're listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. I'm here with Matthew Petty from the Quincy Institute to talk with him about the Quincy Institute's most recent report called No Clean Hands, the Interventions of Middle Eastern Powers from 2010 to 2020. The report found that there is no one quote unquote most interventionist state in the Middle East. Talk about the U.S. role in supporting interventions in the Middle East. Uh, we'll talk about arms sales and we'll talk about how the Iran nuclear deal may have affected or not affected these situations.
1: Thank you for being here with us today, Matthew. Welcome. How are you doing?
5: I'm good, thanks for asking, how are you doing?
1: I'm good, I'm so excited to have you here um, because you and uh, Trita Parsi just released a report for the Quincy Institute called No Clean Hands, the Interventions of the Middle East Powers from 2010 to 2020. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the report and what conclusions conclusions you came to?
5: So the report is an attempt to kind of quantitatively measure how interventionist different Middle Eastern countries are in their backyard. Because we've heard for a very long time, you know, stuff about an axis of evil or a particular dictator being the cause of all the instability. You know, Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, I think briefly after the Iraq war, there was a period in which uh, the Assad regime in Syria was a fountain of instability. This is before the civil war. And then, you know, Iran has kind of been the perennial one. Uh, But, you know, looking at the past 10 years, it seems that actually a lot of different powers in the Middle East are comparably interventionist. Uh, In particular, Iran, the UAE, and Turkey, which are all on three different sides of these regional conflicts. Uh, Not only that, but like qualitatively, their interventions are looking very similar. They all kind of have a similar methodology of Hiring mercenaries in one conflict zone and then shuttling them from conflict to conflict, combining that with drone warfare and special forces to create this kind of cheap method of intervening in other countries' civil wars. I mean, cheap from the perspective of the intervening state, not in terms of the human cost, which has been horrific in all of these cases. And so I think the report kind of shows us that we need to look, the United States needs to look at the Middle East not in terms of like, we need to help our guys beat the bad guys, but rather there's a whole set of actors that are very interventionist and we need to, if we are actually interested in reducing stabi- instability, which I think is in the interest of the American people in the United States, then we need to kind of holistically look at how we can reduce tensions between all the different powers and remove the conditions that are conducive to proxy warfare or at least contribute to this best we can.
1: Thank you. Um, So besides there not just being one bad guy, the report, the quote bad guy, the report also brings in the role of the United States. Um, Can you expand on that a bit?
5: Sure. So I think the US role comes in in two big places. The first is in creating the conditions for proxy warfare. Um, As we found in the report, states, regional states didn't necessarily create the instability. They jumped into the instability. They made it last longer. They inflamed it by intervening. But usually they're not starting a war. They're not invading another country out of nowhere. They're intervening in a civil war that already exists. Many of these civil wars were, I mean, the U.S. didn't start them, like, they were the result of pre-existing tensions in society. But in a lot of cases, U.S. intervention did inflame them. I mean, the Iraq war is the most egregious example. I think that is a case where we started a civil war from scratch. But, you know, in the Libyan war, um, the Yemeni war, even to some extent, the Syrian war, we had been involved militarily in either these countries or their immediate neighbors um, and contributed a lot to uh, social conflict becoming violent. in general, the war on terror, we've introduced a lot of, you know, proxy warfare and violence into the region. Uh, and I think a lot of the countries intervening have, you know borrowed methods from us from uh, Iran looking at how we used Air America in Vietnam, actually, sorry, scratch that. And I think you know, a lot of the countries have picked up on the methods we used. Uh, I don't know if there's a direct link, but it seems pretty interesting to see how Iran has used kind of airline, civilian airlines as cover for moving men and material to compare that to how the CIA did this in Southeast Asia. And you have more direct examples like Turkey looking at how effective U.S. and Israeli drones were and then developing its own drone industry. Or I think the most direct example, the UAE built its proxy army on uh It hired Eric Prince to build its proxy army. This is literally renting American expertise. Um, So that's the first part, how the U.S. introduced a lot of the instability into the region. And the second part which I kind of touched on a little bit is the U.S. role in sustaining these regional countries' interventions. We sell a lot of weapons to the Middle East. Uh, The Stockholm uh, International Peace Research Institute created this methodology for comparing arms sales and found that like the five, five of the six most interventionist powers, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Turkey, um, and Israel, one third of all U.S. arms export worldwide went to those five powers. In addition to that, you have all the diplomatic support, um, political support that these countries get from the U.S., And, I mean, a lot of this is because we say, okay, we need these guys. We need these guys to be interventionists in order to beat back Iranian intervention, because that's a source of instability. But it becomes a kind of circular logic, right? Like, we need to support these interventions to stop stop other people's interventions. Why do we need to stop other people's interventions? Because we need to support our allies. And so that's the kind of second part of the U.S. role, is that we are arming and encouraging a lot of regional interventions. And I mean, I think like we have direct examples, like a lot of the Turkish interventions in Syria or the Saudi intervention in Yemen, uh, where we kind of encourage that, but we also have examples where we don't necessarily like what's going on, like some of the later Turkish interventions in Syria, but we, we don't actually, you know, really punish these countries, we continue to give them a lot of unconditional support.
1: Yeah, definitely. You said one third of all U.S. exports or all worldwide exports? Uh,
5: U.S. arms exports uh, over the past 10 years.
1: Gotcha. Um, In your article in Responsible Statecraft about the report, you said that it was Iran, Turkey, and the UAE have been particularly interventionist in the last 10 years. Um, And you already mentioned Yemen a little bit. Saudi Arabia gets a lot of attention um, for its role in the Yemen war, but the UAE typically doesn't get talked about as much despite being involved throughout the course of the war since 2015. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what UAE intervention looked like in Yemen, but also if there are other examples you can provide?
5: Sure, so I'm not a Yemen expert, but uh, my understanding the Saudis did a lot more uh, direct, they're carrying a lot more of the weight for the direct military intervention, but the Emiratis are, and this goes back to how, uh, you know, the Emirates, Turkey and Iran all have similar methods for proxy warfare. The Emirates have done a lot of stuff with special forces and bringing in proxies. And even when they said they're withdrawing, they didn't really, you know, yank their involvement in the war. They brought in, uh, what my report really focuses on how they brought in like mercenaries, basically. They had hired Eric Prince several years before to bring in Latin American fighters uh, to serve as kind of a Royal Guard. And Eric Prince's personal involvement in this project ended, but then they went into, uh, the Emirates continued to bring in Latin American fighters and use them in the Yemen war. They also pay the salaries of, the rapid support forces in Sudan, uh, who are a kind of infamous military unit in order to get Sudanese troops to come to Yemen. Uh, And this is a model that they've exported around a lot of the region. I mean, before the Yemen war started, the Emirates were working with Eric Prince to create Somali militias. Um, After the uh, Yemen war was in full swing, they exported the same model to Libya. They brought in uh, Sudanese fighters, They also have reportedly paid the salaries of Russian mercenaries there. Uh, And so you have this kind of uh, transnational Emirati-backed mercenary network that's been brought from country to country. Uh, There's a great uh, paper that I cite in my report about the Emirati model in general, which is very training focused. You train guys in conflict zones, so they're beholden to you. um, And so then you can kind of use them as proxies. And and, uh, in addition to that, also, uh, the Emirati-Saudi dynamic is also a little fraught because the Emiratis have backed a lot of militias that the Saudis don't like and vice versa. And you've had cases of Emirati and Saudi uh, proxies fighting each other, which I think is another big part of this report, is like a lot of these regional interventions are not U.S. friends fighting U.S. enemies, it's U.S. friends fighting among each other, which is also incredibly destructive and something that in theory, the US should have a lot more leverage to prevent.
1: Thank you. Um, so in that article um, that I, for responsible statecraft, you also talked a little bit about the Iran nuclear deal. Um, how this may have changed or not changed the behavior of the certain countries since the article, since the report covers the last 10 years and the nuclear deal went through in 2015 and then the U.S. backed down in 2018, I think. Um, how do you think that um, the initiation of the Iran nuclear deal versus the US pulling out of it versus now we're kind of maybe getting back into it? How do you think that has shifted any sort of relations or interventions in the area?
5: Sure. So, yeah, so there's been a narrative in Washington that the Iran nuclear deal flooded Iran with money and allowed them to become more aggressive. There's not really much evidence for that in the report. Whatever the lifting of sanctions um, or reimposition of sanctions had on around the margins, um, Iran pretty much had its interventions set within the first few years of the Arab Spring and didn't expand or contract, didn't expand them with the signing of the nuclear deal and the lifting of sanctions, and didn't contract them with the reimposition of the nuclear deal, right? First few few years of the Beginning of the Arab Spring, they've got um, support. They've got you know proxies in Lebanon. They've got some involvement in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They've got militias in Iraq. Uh, as the Arab Spring unfolds, they start supporting the Houthis in Yemen. They start, uh, according to some physical evidence we have, start sending weapons to the Bahraini opposition. Uh, and then, as Syria and Iraq break down, they get more direct with sending troops there. Uh, but you know this is pretty much hits its peak around 2014 with the ISIS war. And then the nuclear deal signed. there's not really much room for them to expand. And after Trump reimposes maximum economic pressure, I mean, some of their proxies did hurt for money but they didn't really end the relationship with Iran. Iran didn't pull out of these conflicts. Uh, if there was a change in the nuclear deal, it happened because of Iran's rivals. Some of them, I think, had a perception that the United States was abandoning them to Iran. The Saudis came out and said that, um, one of their former intelligence guys came out and said, there's Obama, we were America's best friend in the Middle East for 50 years and now Obama's not, he's not pivoting to Asia, he's pivoting to Iran. Uh, And in Yemen, there was, it's direct, in Yemen, there was a, the Saudis, you know, kind of directly linked their fear of uh, Iran being on the march to going into that war. And, you know, Americans quietly also directly linked like the nuclear deal to their support for the Saudi intervention. They kind of felt like they needed to compensate the Saudis or reassure them. And so I think that's where it became very dangerous, is there was perception among regional powers that the U.S. was less interested in the region and was not going to fight their battles. But the U.S., Materially, was still going to fight their battles and was still interested in the region. So you had kind of uh, Iran's rivals were scared, but also continued to receive the blank checks from the U.S. I mean, the Obama administration offered Saudi Arabia more in weapons sales than it was like a historically huge amount. Um, and so, yeah, that 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 in that way, the Iran nuclear deal might have affected things. And Similarly, I think Biden rejoining the deal, uh, if that ends up happening, might affect things for the better, not necessarily because of Iran's behavior, but because it reduces some of the tension in the region that's been building over the past few years. And it kind of encourages regional powers to sit down with each other. I mean, when Biden came to office, you already saw not just, and again, I want to make this point, it's not just about US allies versus US rivals, it's also US Allies and partners fighting among each other. So, you saw the Iranians and the Saudis start talks. You saw the Turks and Egyptians taking steps to reduce tension. Um, you saw the Saudis and the Qataris reducing tensions. They understood that um, the US is not interested in fighting these battles or inflaming things, and that there's actually a prospect that the US might materially um, reduce its support. Then they start to think, okay, maybe we've got to uh, calm things down. Uh, and yeah, the Iran nuclear deal, I think, also kind of creates a launch pad for everyone to be talking to each other. Um, and I, unlike the first time around, I think you know, the other regional powers are not necessarily as inclined to start getting directly involved because they've also seen how bad these proxy wars have played out. And also we shouldn't overlook not all of the conflicts that have happened over the past 10 years and not all of the escalation that happened since the Iran nuclear deal was about Iran and its rivals. This is the point I keep driving home, but like in the region, there really is a division within U.S. partners between this kind of Saudi Emirati uh, Israeli bloc, like the Abraham Accords bloc, and the kind of Turkish Batari bloc. And so a lot of the conflicts have been driven by by the tensions between them, especially if you look at Libya. I mean, Iran is no involvement in that war, no discernible involvement. Uh, the Syrians kind of, but it's really like the Emiratis, the French, the Egyptians, and the Russians versus the Turks and the Qataris. Um, you know, apart from Russia, these are all US partners. And so I think, again, this is kind of the purpose of the report. like the focus on Iran is not necessarily helpful at understanding what's going on.
1: Thank you. I am wondering just for our audience and also kind of for me, can you sort of simply describe the relationship that the U.S. has with Turkey? I think that's something that's not super well known, especially like even in some foreign policy circles.
5: Yeah, the U.S.-Turkey relationship is complicated. I mean, Turkey was, for a very long time, the eastern flank of NATO. It still kind of is. We keep 50 uh, thermonuclear weapons at Indralik Air Base. Uh, Turkey was pretty vital in the 1991 war in Iraq and subsequent as, as a base and subsequent intervention in the Middle East, although they very pointedly refused to uh, help us with the 2003 uh, with the 2003 war in Iraq. We've sold the Turks billions of dollars of weapons, much less so now because the tensions are increasing, but uh, especially in the 90s during their war with the Kurds. And pretty much up until the 2019 uh, Turkish invasion of Syria, we were giving the Turks intelligence uh, on through, you know, on the positions of of Kurdish fighters. Uh, We cut that because we were freaked out by their latest intervention in Syria, but We, you know, up until very, very recently, we were helping the Turkish drone war against Kurdish uh, rebels. So now in recent years, you have a lot more tension. You have the Turks kind of picking fights with Israel, uh, buying Russian military equipment, and generally signaling that uh, they're not, uh, they want to have a more independent foreign policy. And I think the uh, invasion of Syria in October 2019 was kind of the boiling point of that, where they not only attacked U.S. partners on the ground, but they also did it in a way that was extremely brutal and and of made the U.S. look very bad. Uh, but even with all those tensions, I mean, we still have nuclear weapons in injury Like we still have this military, military-to-military military relationship, and I have a feeling that uh, you know we could still. Uh, I don't. I don't necessarily think it'll go back to the heyday, but I think especially if Erdogan loses the next election, uh, you know relations might be repaired a little bit and we might have a bigger role than we do now in supporting the Turkish military.
1: Thank you. Um, the report suggests that the US backs quite a few of the interventionist countries and like you've mentioned today. So what do you think, um, what responsibility do you think the US has here moving forward?
5: Yeah, I mean, I don't think the U.S. can fix all the problems in the Middle East, but I think we do have quite a bit of leverage to control the, um, not to control, but to influence the behavior of our partners and allies. And so, like I said, there's been a lot more regional diplomacy. Uh, I think that the U.S. should definitely encourage that and should uh, discourage regional powers wherever possible from reaching for weapons and you know, reaching for military actions, the way to solve their problems. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the biggest areas is we need to, you know, stop our partners from doing irresponsible things to each other. I mean, you know, you have the Saudi blockade of Qatar, which the Trump administration very much like openly encouraged up until the point where the Saudis and the Emirates were threatening an invasion of Qatar. And then you had, reportedly rex tillerson uh trying to make phone calls to calm that down but up until it got to that point you had encouragement uh i mean what happened in jordan recently the still very murky whether there was a coup attempt or not um but the lead up to all those kind of events was that jared kushner was helping with the saudi emirati uh sorry saudi israeli pressure campaign against the king of jordan and like You know, this is a pretty stable country in the Middle East and one of our partners. I think the U.S. and and the countries pressuring Jordan are also U.S. partners. I think the U.S. should theoretically have the leverage to sit all three of them down at the table and. Tell them, knock it off, guys, like this is a very dangerous game you're playing. Uh, Yeah. And I think on top of all that, I think we got to first do no harm. Right. The US has, uh, as we've seen through the Iraq war, as we've seen through the intervention in Libya, very often done things that cause state collapse. And we need to be able to resist the temptation to, if we see a conflict going on, or we see a society with a lot of tensions in it, to blow that up, um, right? I'm not saying revolutions are bad, I'm not saying, you know, a a regime change in the broadest sense of like a new order of things is bad, but state collapse, you know, blowing up institutions is a very dangerous thing that we need to be much, much more judicious about uh, using tools like military action or sanctions uh, to try to accomplish.
1: Thank you, Matthew, for being here with us today. Um, Where can we follow you like on Twitter and where can we follow the Quincy Institute? How can we stay up to date with what you're doing?
5: Sure, so my Twitter is uh, Matthew underscore Petty. Uh, You'll get lots of food content in addition to politics. Uh, The Quincy Institute Twitter handle is uh, Quincy Inst. That's Q-U-I-N-C-I-N-S-T. And the Quincy Institute also has a publication called Responsible Statecraft, which you can find at rstatecraft on Twitter or at uh, responsiblestatecraft.org. Um, and yeah, also the Quincy Institute website, quincyinst.org. And we also have an Instagram, uh, although I'm not a big Instagram user, so <laughs> I'm not super familiar. But uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, follow Responsible Statecraft. Uh, we come out with all sorts of analysis from all different sides of the issue, Uh, of course, with an eye towards, you know, more restrained foreign policy. And uh, yeah, that's my plug.
0: Thank you and have a great day. You too. Thank you, Matthew, so much for being with us. Go to codepink.org, everyone, to see what we're up to, to support our actions and to stay in loop on world events. Thank you for listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C.
3: think they're foes they're in business together Danny bush knows the carlisle group since years before been raking in billions and itching for more it's, it's blood, blood for oil we know there's a link they say code war we say code